Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. If you're just joining us for the first time today, again, I'm Pastor Brandon, one of the pastors on staff here at North Main Street Church of God. So welcome. We're super glad you're here. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time, like I said, we've also been going through a series this month entitled Parting Peace. And so our theme for this year has been on this idea, or as we would call it, a fruit of the Spirit called peace. And we've been exploring all the way through Scripture what actual peace really is. Peace is not necessarily the absence of difficulty, the absence of hard times, but peace is being able to weather the storms of life with the one who is called the Prince of Peace. We know him to be Jesus Christ. As Isaiah called him in the Old Testament, he is Emmanuel, God with us, but he's also the Prince of Peace and of his government, peace will reign forever. And so we've been talking about that this, this, this whole year, but this month we've been talking about this parting peace. We've been looking at the letters of Paul in the New Testament, and uh, we will next week be looking at one of the letters of Peter. And it's the closing words of those letters which stand out. Uh, the question I gave you at the first sermon of this month was, what are the last words you say to somebody before you part ways? Are they always good? Are they always words of peace or words of love? Uh, What would you do if you knew that that was the last time you would see that person? What words would you say to them? So Paul is now addressing these many different churches in the New Testament in the first century where he's established a presence of the gospel of Christ in many different cities across uh, the Mediterranean coastal lines of Greece and Turkey and several different locations where he has traveled. And guess what? Those churches have problems. Yes, 2,000 years ago when the church initially started under the headship of Christ and through God's apostles and disciples who established these churches with the gospel of Christ, they had problems. In the church at Thessalonians, which we're going to be looking at today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to see a church that struggled with the concept of holiness or living a holy life. But we're also going to see a church who struggled to truly do what they felt called to do by God through Christ Jesus to do the right things. The problem is, most often what happens in churches, especially in the churches in the early context of of, uh, Roman culture uh, and in Greece where these churches were being planted that we're talking about today, um, you'll find that they allowed the culture to creep into the church, the Greco-Roman culture. The philosophies of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, though they be very wise, began to creep into Christian teaching and somewhat began to muddy the waters of theology of that day and age. And so Paul writes to the churches of the New Testament these words to hopefully clarify some of the problems that were arising within the church. 
And I'm not going to go into great detail about that right now, about what all of those problems were. Suffice it to say, they just weren't good. Okay? So what is this word holy? Since we're going to be talking about holiness today and, God, uh, and Paul's parting words of peace to the church at Thessalonica, and real side note here real quick, Thessalonica is a, Greece, is a city of Greece right up on the northern part of, of uh, well, you know the peninsula of Greece kind of juts down into the Mediterranean Sea. I told you the little three-fingered man a couple weeks ago the three fingers down there. And then Corinth was like right in the wrist area of the three fingers. Well, Thessalonica, if you follow the coast up on the right-hand side of Greece, it's all the way up on the northern part of that coast, okay? That's where Thessalonica is. Not that you really care, I just love geography. I about said geometry. <laughs> geography, I really do love geography. But he gives this, this, this uh, sermon, if you will, or this writing of holiness. So what, is, what does it mean to be holy? Because we're told in Paul's letters and even, even in uh, Peter's letter, we are to be holy as God is holy. So what is holiness? Well, in some contexts, it's also to be perfect as God is perfect. <laughs> Have you ever said, I'm not perfect? Nobody's perfect. And in, the, in saying that, yes, you're saying a true statement, but if we are to be perfect as God is perfect or to be holy as God is holy, then how was that an attainable task if we say we're not perfect? It seems like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Well, here's what holiness or to be holy actually means. And I'll tell you what perfection is in the context of theology and scripture. Holiness simply means to be set apart, right? All right, so forks, you use a fork. It is set apart for a purpose. What do you use a fork for? To eat. You do not comb your hair with a fork, do you? You shouldn't if you, I mean, maybe you do, maybe it's all you got and you've welded several forks together and you've made a nice little, little comb. That's not what the intended purpose for a fork is, right? Right, it is in, it's intended to eat food with. So it is set apart for eating. That's what a fork is. There were temple implements like the candelabra in the temple. There was a table of, of offerings for showbread in the temple at that day and age when Jesus was still on earth and prior to that. Uh, there was a burning incense or a table of incense that was to be burnt in the tabernacle or the temple. These items were considered what? Holy. Why? Because they had a specific purpose and they were only to be used for those purposes. That's why they're considered holy. Okay? So now put that into the perspective of you and I. If we are to be holy as God is holy, that means God is set apart. Yes? He is not a part of his creation as his creation, the way some, pantheists, some pantheistic traditions and or religions state that God is everything. He's the pew you're sitting in. He is the sky, the trees. No, actually to say that God is holy means he is set apart. He transcends his creation. He is not the creation. He created the creation as the creator. 
Okay, so he is holy. Now we are to be holy as he is holy. If God is set apart from his creation for an intended purpose to breathe life into the created order, and we know based on John's writings in the New Testament that God is love, now what does that mean in context to us? If we are to be holy as God is holy, we are not to be a part of the earth the way this fallen, broken world is, but we are to be set apart from the world. Does this make sense? Are you with me? Those of you at home, give me a thumbs up. I can't see you, but I trust you're doing this. All right? All right, so we are set apart for God's purposes. We are to be set apart. We are to be holy as God is holy. When it says we are to be perfect as God is perfect, do you know what that means? Well, the word in Greek for perfect actually means complete or whole, okay? So not partial, not broken. We say, well, I'm broken. I I have a broken marriage. I have a broken life. I've had trauma after trauma in my life. I'm just a broken individual. Does that mean that you cannot be perfect as God is perfect or whole or complete? No, no, no. Because in Christ, you become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You then are perfected through Christ who makes you whole and complete. That is the only way we as imperfect people can be perfected is through Christ. So that when God sees us, he sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ, whom we've accepted as Lord and Savior of our lives. Does this make sense? All right, now that's the basis. So let's get into the reading today. Actually, let me give you this illustration before we get into the context. I was trying to find a good illustration of this. And have you ever heard of an ermine? Ermine? Anybody? Raise your hand. A couple of you. Yes. It is, um, oh, let me read you. In the northern forests of Europe and Asia, there's this animal called this ermine, and it's known for its snow white fur in winter, and, and it instinctively protects its white coat against anything that would soil it. Okay. They are perfectionists when it comes to making sure they don't get dirty because they don't want to get their white coat disgusting. So what fur hunters will do is they'll take advantage of this unusual trait in order to capture an ermine. They don't set a snare to catch them in a cage or anything like that, but instead they find where its home is, which is usually in the cleft of a rock or the hollow of a tree, They smear the entrance and the interior with grime and grease and nastiness. Oh, really? I'm wearing an ermine hat tomorrow. (laughs) Just kidding, I'm not. I I won't. Coonskin, maybe, but not an ermine. So what they do is they smear the entrance and the inside of this, this home of the ermine with all of this nastiness. And then the hunters set loose their dogs to find and chase the ermine. Of course, the ermine will run back to the safe location, the place they know, which is their home. The frightened animal flees toward the home, but it doesn't go in because of the filth. It is so determined not to get dirty that it will not run into that grime and filth. Rather than soil its white coat, it's trapped by the dogs and captured while preserving its purity. For the ermine, the purity is more precious than life itself. 
Holiness may seem old. It may seem outdated to many people, but it's something to which we are called, especially to those within the church. As believers in Christ, like the airmen, is living a life for Christ more important to you than anything else? Or are you willing to soil yourself with this life because, well, it's just easier. I'm not perfect. I hear that so often. And it's true. None of us are perfect. But if we are to be perfect as God is perfect and be holy as God is holy, we are to be set apart. We are to be made whole because of Christ. This isn't a works righteousness thing. And if that's where your mind's going in the context of this, please start to blot that out because I want to unpack this a little bit today. All right. First Thessalonians chapter five, Paul closes out the letter, his first letter to the Thessalonians this way. He says, dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you to give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. I almost didn't read that because it's awkward for a spiritual leader to stand up on the stage and say, you need to honor me. Okay, but I, I, I'm going to give you context in just a moment because I want to unpack that a little bit too in regard to what Paul's actually saying here. Verse 14, he goes on to write, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. That's actually what that word means. Warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone. That's next year's theme, by the way. Did you know that? Patience. And every year we've done one of these fruit of the spirit, it's been tested. Love, joy, peace, patience. Buckle up for next year. Be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. He's talking about, so basically do good to each other. He's talking about you guys there at the Thessalonian church. Do good to each other there in that church, but do good to all people too. Do you see what he's saying? He's making distinctives here. Always be joyful. That's, that's kind of a command. Always be joyful. Are you always joyful? <laughs> that's a toughie. That was the year of COVID-19 when the pandemic hit, our year of joy. That's what our theme was that year. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Is that a command? Yeah. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Jesus Christ. Are you thankful in all circumstances? He doesn't say only be thankful for the good circumstances of your life or the, for the blessings you receive. He says be thankful in all circumstances, right? Whew. See, I know when difficult times come and difficult circumstances happen, I'm not thankful. That's the last thing that comes to my mind. When, when hard times hit, I don't often think about good things. I don't often think, Lord, thank you for this. And if I do, it's usually in a sarcastic tone. Oh, well, thanks a lot, God. But that's not what he's talking about. He's being grateful in all circumstances. Be thankful in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you who belong to Jesus Christ. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. In some versions it says quench, as if taking a bucket of water and throwing it on a fire. Because oftentimes the Holy Spirit is attributed to fire. 
represented by fire. So what Paul is saying, don't take a bucket of water and throw it on the Holy Spirit. How would we do that? By living in ways that are unholy. By treating each other in ways that God wouldn't even treat us. By thinking of things that should not be in our thought processes. Stay away from every kind of evil. Don't scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good and stay away from every kind of evil. Don't scoff at prophecies. Prophecies come from prophets. Prophets are those who speak or who are the mouthpiece of God. They have been through the Old Testament, and yes, there are prophets in the New Testament as well. And they are the ones who stand and speak on behalf of God. But not everyone who stands and speaks for God truly does speak for God. It's only those who are called to speak for God who are prophets. Do you understand this? In an official capacity of prophethood. But he's saying don't scoff at prophecies, but test them. How do we test prophecies? There's a couple different ways. If the prophecy comes true then usually the person is telling the truth, right? And they're trustworthy. But another way to test whether or not a prophecy is accurate is also search scripture. If the prophecy a person is speaking contradicts God's word, then guess what? They're not a prophet of God. They could be a prophet of someone else. Maybe if not their own self-interest, something even more evil. Now may the God of peace, he goes on to write, make you holy in every way and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until your Lord Jesus Christ comes again. This is another word for blameless uh, that we use in some of the older uh, versions of scripture like the King James. It says be sanctified and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Be kept blameless. May your whole soul and body and spirit be kept blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen. For he who calls you is faithful. And then he goes on to some final things. He says, dear brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a sacred kiss. There's another holy kiss passage. You remember that first one? Right? In the days of COVID, holy kisses are not a good thing, right? That's what it says, but it's just like a handshake or a formal greeting is what he's saying. And it's in context to this, it's when I, when I preached on this uh, two, two weeks ago uh, in the church at Corinth, they, were, they had a lot of infighting in the church. And so when Paul says, greet each other with a sacred kiss or a holy kiss, it's hard to greet somebody with a holy kiss, like kiss on the cheeks or the forehead if you're really angry at them right? And he's saying, break down the barriers, show gentle kindness and affection to one another. Okay. And he goes on to verse 27. I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So what's the takeaway? Here's, here's the key point really quickly this morning. It's this living a holy life is an indicator that the God of peace has your heart. Living a holy life is an indicator that the God of peace has your heart. Okay? And how does this work? Let's break this down a little bit further. The first point is this. Honor those who lead in the Lord's work. I came across John Stott. He's a really famous author and pastor, really known for his gift of communication or preaching. So John Stott writes this quote from one of his books that I think encapsulates 
this better than I could probably articulate it for you today. And it's really lengthy. I normally don't put really, really long quotes and things, but I want you to hang in there with me. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, historically speaking, the church of Jesus Christ has oscillated unsteadily between the equally unbiblical extremes of clericalism and anti-clericalism. What does that mean? All right. When we say somebody is a cleric, they are an esteemed person who leads a congregation. It could be a priest, a pastor, a preacher, somebody who vocationally does this for a living. So that is clericalism. And when clericalism is taken to an extreme, it means that they are the only ones that are allowed at all to do any ministry. And you must follow them completely. You basically have to submit everything you are to them. That's clericalism. Anti-clericalism is where everybody says, pastors, I don't think the church should pay anybody to do anything. And so pastors, priests, and so let's just all be the church and do what the church should do. We don't need evangelists, pastors, apostles, prophets, teachers. We've got this covered. So those are one of two extremes. And John Stott, and I would agree with him, says these are unbiblical extremes. Listen to what he says. Clericalism is a situation in which clergy keep the reins of power in their own hands. They monopolize all pastoral leadership and ministry. And having been put on a pedestal, they receive an exaggerated deference. While the so-called laity are well and truly set upon. Have you ever sat under pastor or a priest like that? Then able men and women are allowed no space in which to develop their God-given gifts or exercise them in appropriate ministries. On the contrary, the only contributions from them which are welcomed are their presence on Sundays to occupy otherwise empty pews and some administrative and practical assistance along with their tithe money. This is very sad. It is horrible. But I have seen situations and ministries where there is a heavy-handed clergy mentality and you just need to be faithful in giving your money to the church. Make sure you show up on Sundays or we'll hunt you down. Right? Have you seen that kind of abusive situation? Where there is no empowerment of the body of Christ. There's no equipping of the body of Christ to see how God has uniquely created them to do what they were uniquely created to do in God's kingdom. Clericalism is damaging. But he goes on to say at the extreme opposite end, there's this overreaction called anti-clericalism. This sometimes begins with the recovery of Paul's model of the body of Christ in which every member of the local church, like every member of the human body, is a particular distinctive function. It starts off good, with good motives and premises. Some Christians, however, overpress the analogy And they deduce from it that clergy, in any shape or form, are redundant. The church is better off without them, they cry. Let's found a society for the abolition of clergy. But this extreme position overlooks the fact that according to the New Testament, the chief shepherd, Jesus, actually does 
delegate ministry to under shepherds or pastors this oversight of the flock that he purchased with his own blood. So it's not clericalism, nor is it anti-clericalism. It's usually somewhere right in here in the middle, right? It's where we read in Ephesians chapter 4, and our staff has been starting to unpack this this season in our ministry as a church, and so you'll probably be hearing more of this as, as the weeks and the months go by. But listen, at Ephesians 4, and this isn't on the screen, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, starting at verse 11. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, five of them. Their, what is their responsibility? It says, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. I showed our team this week how the King James Version takes liberty with actually misinterpreting that the way it punctuates it. I won't show that to you today. You can look it up for yourself and contrast the two. But the King James Version is very clerical in its stance. When you look at the punctuation marks, it's saying that the only ones who could do ministry are these five different positions. But that is not biblical. That is not even a part of what the teaching is meant to be. But rather, the responsibility of the pastors, prophets, evangelists, apostles, teachers, all of that crew is for this purpose, is to equip the saints for ministry, is to equip the body of Christ, to give you the tools necessary to do what you necessarily need to do for Christ. We don't do it perfectly because we're not perfect, but we have been perfected in Christ in order to do this. The problem is when you put too much faith in people rather than in Christ, right? I see in pastors fall like like dead flies in our country right now. Some of the most famous people who we've revered and put on pedestals. It's a heart-wrenching reality, isn't it? Yes, we need good men and women to stand in the gaps. But when truth really reveals itself, we need Christ more than we need anything else. See, the over-shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, is the one who empowers, who gives of himself for others. See, this is what Jesus did with his disciples. He breathed on them. He gave them of, uh, something of himself. And he says, it's your turn. I've given you everything I can. I've given you my life. Now I want you to go make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm not expecting you to do this alone. I'm with you to the end of the age. This is what God has empowered and equipped us for. And yes, there are some of us who have a specific calling to lead large groups like this. We don't take that lightly, or at least... I know I don't. I know I will stand in judgment someday in front of the Lord. And I'll either hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, or get away from me, I never knew you. And I'm working toward the former. Come in, 
receive the reward prepared for you. I don't want to be a stumbling block. But I also don't want to shy away from my responsibility as a spiritual leader. It's why the messages I preach aren't always nice to hear because the Word of God isn't always easy to digest. But it's necessary because it's good. So he says, listen, their responsibility is to build up the body of Christ, to equip God's people to do his good work. This will continue. Now I want you to hear this. This will continue until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Has the church ever reached that point yet? You could say, well, that's showing really bad on your job. Your job responsibility is to equip us and build us up. You're not doing a great job, and it doesn't seem like any other spiritual leader has in times past. You guys need to get out, and that's anti-clericalism creeping in, right? But God still has a purpose for his church and for his spiritual leaders. He goes on in verse 14, then we will no longer be like immature children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We, we will be, not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Have you ever been on the news? And it seems like there's so much information out there, but you're not sure what to believe because it all sounds pretty darn convincing. Yeah? I'm not saying be anti-news. I'm not saying don't do your own research, but let the basis and foundation for all of your research be the truth of God's word first. Now that may sound trite, it may sound too simplistic, but you, if you know the truth that can truly set you free spiritually, do you not think that has an impact on the physical realm of your life as well? Yes, can we agree with that? Okay, so now when I'm reading, I may not have all the medical knowledge to be able to know what's right and what's wrong. I may not be able to have all of the uh, historical knowledge of a situation or a fact, but if I've got God's truth first and foremost in my life as a solid foundation, then I believe the Holy Spirit can guide and direct me in wisdom to the right answer at the right time. Yes? So, that being the truth, instead of seeking everywhere else, let's get back to the Word. Amen. Let's get back to our spiritual leaders. And yes, do you know what he says there? Test them. He says, don't scoff at them, but test what they're telling you. I tell you this all the time. Don't take my word for it. Dig in and find it out for yourselves. At least at this time period in, in American history, you still have the freedom to own a Bible. Any version of your choice. Take it off the shelf, dig into it. Look at what we're telling you from this platform and say, you know what? I, I either agree with that or I don't. And let's have a dialogue. Let's unpack this together. Because see, there's something about iron sharpening iron right? It's not comfortable. Have you ever seen a blacksmith taking these different, if they're making a sword or different things like that, and they sharpen them. And what, what are these sparks that fly off of that? 
Little flecks of heated, intense metal. See, that's what happens when we work together, not fight against each other, but truly, in peaceful ways, challenge one another. Tell me what you mean by what you say when you said this. Unpack with me the truth of God's word here so that I can know it better because I don't know that I agree with you. This is where the sparks may fly, but they should sharpen rather than dull. Okay? And we talked about this. uh, We went through the Bait of Satan series and we talked about offense. The problem, I think, is we become so soft that when sparks fly, we like to run from the heat. But it's in the blazing furnace that we're purified. It's not comfortable to be sharpened, but it's necessary. Because if you're not sharpened, the rest of the world will take advantage of that. The enemy will take advantage of that. He will seek to devour you with this high-sounding nonsense and empty philosophies of this world that come from them rather than from Christ. We're living in days where it's more imperative than ever to not stand and be violent, but to stand and show ourselves approved. We are in times of testing in our nation, in the church, in our culture. And I'm afraid that when the fire comes, what's left will not be much. Because we built straw houses rather than a firm foundation. Just stay away from every kind of evil. Well, Brandon, what truly is evil? I I get in these debates with people all the time. Was it really wrong to do this? Is it really a bad thing if I, I mean, is it okay? I mean, surely it's okay if I just live with my girlfriend or boyfriend, right? We're just trying this. I mean, there's nothing, everybody else is doing it, right? It's okay. I mean, what's so wrong if I do this thing and it's just, and that sounds funny. I told you holiness sounds old and outdated in a culture like ours. To note, tote the line of the LGBTQ agenda is now considered outdated. I mean, to hold a traditional view of family and marriage is actually considered hate speech nowadays. Listen, I'm not going to get up on this high horse and condemn everybody else to hell. But I'm going to tell you the truth as best I know it based on God's word. And we are to love people into God's kingdom, not beat them to death with the Bible. Do you understand that? There is a fine line between really using your weight as a believer in Christ to destroy somebody else's faith rather than paving the way for them to receive this God of love. And yes, he is a God of love, but he is a God of awesome might and power who has the right to judge all people at all times, including me. I will stand before him just like anybody else will. I'm not the judge, but there is one who is. And if I lead people to him, they might have an encounter that they say, oh my, I didn't realize. Or if they did realize, they might say, oh my. I need to do something about this. I truly do. What does it mean 
to live a life of holiness. What does it mean to avoid evil? He says, warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of the weak, be patient with everyone, don't pay back evil for evil, do good to others, always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, don't stifle the Holy Spirit, don't scoff at prophecies, but test what's said, hold on to what is good and stay away from evil. That's a mouthful, right? You're like, I can barely remember one of those. I mean, I can't remember. I can, okay, so stay away from evil and um, uh, be patient. And you're probably scrambling to remember the rest, right? So what's he talking about here? To, to be lazy actually means to be disorderly or to not submit to discipline or orderly uh, uh, behavior. Do you know that? That's somebody saying, I'm going to do it my way. It's none of your business what I do. Get away, right? You, you, who are you to judge me? Lazy, yes, is kind of sitting back on your laurels and doing nothing. But in this context, it's being disorderly, not doing the right things, but rather just living however you please, doing whatever you want to do. And it says, warn those who are lazy. Warn those who like to rabble rouse and stir up trouble who aren't working for the right purposes, instead are wasting away their potential. Encourage those who are timid. These are faint-hearted or discouraged. They're less hopeful or enthusiastic about things. They walk around just with this downcast expression. And it's more than an expression, it's a deeply rooted feeling for them. He says, encourage them. He doesn't say beat them down. He doesn't say snap out of it. He says, encourage them. Breathe life into them. Walk with them through this dark valley so that when they come to the other side, they can be thankful for that. Take tender care of the weak. This is those who are wanting or needing moral strength, courage, or will. And maybe you've been weak a time or two. You've not had the courage you've needed. Maybe you've fallen on hard times. And you faltered a little bit. He says, take tender care of those types of people until they can grow in confidence again. We're too busy to take time for people like this, aren't we? Be patient with everyone. It means to be even-tempered while enduring trying and difficult circumstances. Don't pay back evil for evil. The word for payback in this verse means recompense or to reward or punish based upon what a person deserves. You and I both deserve death. Did you know that? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Romans 3.23, Carol, where are you? You always laugh when I say this because I botched it a few years ago and I said, something weird. So <laughs> Romans 3.23, it's in the archives. You can look back on it, I don't know, 2018. So for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Who is that? Everybody. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So he says, don't pay back evil for evil. Don't give, something that the, don't give someone something they deserve. Evil, that is. If they've done something, don't say, oh, I'm going to get you. Oh, yeah, you know what I'm going to do? Oh, I'll find a way. I'll make it hard on you. Oh, yeah, if you don't do that, if you don't, I tell you what. 
Because you did this, then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make life hell for you. <gasps> did he just say a bad word? Well, if we're using it in biblical terms, yes. He, people do that, right? They want to make it so hard on you because in their mind, you've done something against them, and maybe you have, and maybe you need to own up to it and re repent of that. Don't repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what Paul tells us in Romans. Do good to others. The word Paul uses for good here is to be willing to give and share generously with somebody else. Even what little you may have. Always be joyful. Context here means to rejoice and to be glad. And actually, you've heard me read this over and over and over again. James chapter 1, he says, When difficult times come your way, Rejoice. <laughs> Why? Because when difficult times happen and you prove yourself through perseverance, that comes into perfection through a maturity and faith that is able to stand the test of time. Never stop praying. Never stop actually means to be constant or unceasing. And I've thought about this in the past. And uh, what does it mean to never stop praying? Because our traditional stance of prayer is to clasp the hands, to close the eyes. You couldn't drive well like that unless you have a Tesla that has automatic driving. And very few people have those. And it's still not really tested technology yet. You can't do that when you're cooking. right? We weren't called to be in constant prayer like this. But what does it mean to be an unceasing prayer? Talking to God, communication with God. I liken it to being with my wife. We don't always talk, but our presence together is still communication. Do you understand that? My cognizance and awareness of her wherever we are is a constant connection. That's what this is. Yes, sometimes when I pray, I use words, but not all the time. Because often I'm trying to tune my ear to listen because prayer is two-way conversation. It's not just me picking up the phone saying, Lord, make sure my day is good, bless my food, take care of my kids, uh, you know, uh, help uh, this person that's sick in the hospital. Oh, and by the way, thanks a lot. I love you. Click. Right? That is not great communication. Great communication is talking, but also listening. And so being unceasing prayer means sometimes to shut your mouth and to tune your ear. You've heard you got two of these and one of these. You should be listening twice as much as you speak. That is more important than anything else in our relationship with God. There you go. Be thankful in all circumstances. The word Paul uses for thankful means to be impressed with a feeling of gratitude for kindness received and be ready and willing to acknowledge it. One of the things I'm struggling with with my youngest daughter, whose name will be unmentioned in this arena, because some of you may not know her, and that's okay, Raylan. So, <laughs> one of the things I'm struggling with these days with our little preteen is uh, gratefulness. We do a lot of things for our kids, and some of you know who have kids, you do a lot of things for your kids that they just take for granted, right? You put food on the table, you provide a bed, you provide heat and air conditioning for the house. You, do, you go above and beyond. Some, even just given the bare necessities, we've even said, 
I'm only required to give you a bed and food, nothing else. <laughs> when times get really rough with our kids. But, but my, my littlest one right now is going through this stage where she's complaining about everything. And I'm like, if I go to McDonald's to get her a little treat. It's not good enough because it wasn't the right thing, or it wasn't the right flavor, or it wasn't the right pair of shoes, or it wasn't this, and it wasn't that, and I could feel my ungratefulness rising up inside, and I say, can't you just be grateful for once? <laughs> Realizing how ungrateful I am when I'm trying to talk to my little one about being grateful. Not the best parenting advice to give you today. Paul says to be thankful in all circumstances. We don't deserve anything. What do we deserve? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal. We don't deserve that. But God in his goodness and love and mercy and forgiveness and gentleness and grace says, I'm going to come out of heaven, step into time, and I'm going to take on their sin. I'm going to become sin for them so that they don't have to incur the punishment. But there's one thing I can't do. I can't make them accept it. I can offer it. I can deal with the problem of sin and death once and for all. But there's still a choice they have to make on my behalf. And they have to step into that. We call that faith and belief. That's what pleases God, as the author of Hebrews tells us. We cannot please God without faith. And so when we step into that, then we become complete. We become whole and holy. We become set apart. And if nothing else in life is going right, we still have something to be thankful for. Even if I lose my job, I can thank God that I still have life. And I know he's going to see me through somehow. I don't know how. And I may be questioning God. I may be writing him a nice little letter of frustration. In my prayer time, I may be questioning him over and over and over again. But God, I still trust you. I'm still thankful that you've given me life. When a, 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 a terminal cancer or terminal illness becomes the reality, or when some impending death happens and I know that there's an end, and I can still be thankful because of the years I've previously had. I can still be thankful that God loves me. I can still be thankful for so much. Where's your focus? Be grateful in all, or be thankful in all circumstances. Don't stifle the Holy Spirit. Who do we do this in the church? Do we do this in our own lives? Again, it's like putting out fire with water. Does your behavior, do your actions, do your words, do your thoughts quench the Holy Spirit? But Brandon, you, I struggle with temptation from time. No, no, no. It's, it's not about struggling with temptation. It's about giving into it. It's not about uh, having the thoughts. It's what you do with the thoughts. How far do you allow the thought to hold you captive or do you allow the Holy Spirit to hold you captive? Take every thought captive and surrender it to God. Last week, we looked at the last chapter of Philippians. What does Paul tell us to think on? Things that are good and holy and praiseworthy, right? He goes through a whole gamut of different things that we are to think on. Don't stifle the Holy Spirit. Don't take charge when the Holy Spirit desires to take charge of you. 
That goes for the church at large and for individuals. Don't scoff at prophecies, but test what is said. I've talked to you about that. Hold on to what is good. Ooh, that's a toughie. What, is, what does it mean to hold on to what's good? It means to hold fast or to stick firmly to what is morally ex- excellent or admirable. Morally excellent or admirable. Morals have shifted and maybe have gone out of style. But you're supposed to hold on to what is good, what is morally right, even when everybody else may not. Hold on to it. Stick firmly to it. Don't give it up. And don't go toward evil. Stay away from evil. Why? It says that God will do this. Did you catch that? He's not asking you to do it in and of your own strength. All of that whole list of things, when you read what Paul says there in Thessalonians, he says, God will do this because he is faithful. The God who has called you to this is faithful. So you're probably thinking through that whole list and saying, there's no way I could do this. And you would be correct. But he says that little caveat at the end, and it's not just little, it is full of truth and promises. See, the Lord will do this because he is faithful. He's not saying you can do it without him. He's saying because of your belief in him and your surrendered life to Jesus Christ, the Lord will accomplish this through you, through the power of his Holy Spirit, because he is faithful. That's a part of the promise of God. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, he expresses this in one of his commentaries. He says, the God of peace is the one who will make his people holy so that they will be blameless at the coming of Jesus. He's talking about the second coming. Of course, part of this means, by, part of the means by which he will do this is the thinking, suffering, struggling of the people themselves. We don't like that aspect of faith. Because when we are tested in any of those ways that I just mentioned, it's painful at times, isn't it? Sometimes we're alone in the process. We feel like nobody else understands. But God's with us. He will accomplish this through us. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward. Author and theologian, Bruce Barton puts it this way, as God takes up residence within a believer, he begins the process of sanctification or helping someone to be made holy. The change that he makes in all believers lives as they grow in faith. Jesus said, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Believers are to be sanctified or set apart by the work of Christ. It is initiated by God's Spirit when they believe. It is a process whereby believers dedicate themselves to proper living. While perfection will not occur until believers are in heaven, sanctification is the process of moving toward the goal of moving toward Christ-likeness. I remember sitting in front, you may have heard me say this, I was ordained in 2003 into the Church of God as an official pastor after I went through the gauntlet and the gamut of questioning, which is good. Every pastor should have to go through that. It's, it's exciting and fun and jovial. But nevertheless, I remember setting through my final ordination meeting in front of the whole committee. 
having to defend my doctrinal statement, and there was a section on sanctification. I'm not going to get into the great deep conflict that we had on that or as a movement of the Church of God that we've kind of struggled with internally. But I said sanctification in my statement of faith, in my doctrinal statement, is a process of being made holy by God through Christ as a new creation till the time when God consummates that when I see him face to face. There are traditions that believe sanctification is a second work like salvation is. You may be in this arena feeling or, 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 or talking or believing that. But I remember that process. I think, it, I, think it, I know that that sin is a reality in this world. Jesus dealt with sin once and for all. I'm his child, I'm a new creation, which means I'm not tainted by that sin because I'm a child of God. But what happens when I stumble? What happens when I mess up? Do I completely get kicked out of the kingdom of God? Oh, that's a tough debate. This is a whole different sermon for a different time. I didn't mean to go off on this tangent. Suffice it to say, again, let's get back on track. No, I believe God's grace covers that multitude of sins. I think if you were to continue on that track, you might have some major problems. If you continue on this track of unholiness and continue to do things your way, continue to reject God, we can debate on if, if you've lost your salvation or not. I don't think salvation, losing your salvation is like losing a set of keys. I think it's a willful rejection of Christ. But God's grace is sufficient. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. It means to be complete in him, knowing that you in and of yourself cannot complete you. Why did you think it, it took Christ coming in order to make this happen? Because none of us could do it. Do you live a life that's holy? Have you surrendered your complete life to Christ? Your anger, your frustration, your bitterness? Have you surrendered any of that? The difficulties and struggles you face on a day-to-day -day basis, have you surrendered those? Have you surrendered your kids? Maybe your prodigal child, have you surrendered them? See, if, if God is good, which I believe he is, and he's love, which I believe he is, then I believe he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He'll answer your prayers. He'll bring you to a place of peace if you're willing to be completely surrendered to him in all ways and in every ways, not just with your soul, but with all that is within you and around you. I don't know where you are today, but honestly, I want, I want you to hear my heart that Yes, God loves you, and he loves you right where you are, but he loves you enough not to leave you where you are. When you go through deep, dark valleys, he walks with you, if you let him. When you go on the mountaintops, he's right there beside you. You may be able to feel him in those experiences, but just as much as he's with you on the mountaintop, he's with you through the valleys of life. And if you are unsurrendered in any area of your life, what are you waiting for? Let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being very God, 
did not consider equality with God as something to cling to, but instead offered himself as a slave. He enslaved himself into this form we call humanity and subjected himself to death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, (laughs) I can't say as I know what everybody's struggling with in here. I only know my struggles intimately, and you know them as well. But I know you know the struggles people have brought into this place, the difficulties they're they're, they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And maybe it's not from anything of their own making. Maybe it's just circumstantial. Maybe it's a situation they've caught in the middle of. But God, you know what it is. And you are the rescue. But sometimes even when a life ring is thrown to us in the middle of a stormy sea, we fight against it thinking we can save ourselves. God, let us not be so stubborn that we don't surrender to the life ring of Jesus Christ, our salvation and our hope. Help us to be humble enough to admit we can't do it on our own that this life of holiness is not something that we can accomplish on our own, but can only be accomplished with you in our lives as you make us holy and perfect. Thank you, Father, that you haven't given up on us. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.